Yes. Yes, it is the 8th of January. And uh, we are discussing uh, Epistle to the Hebrews, Lesson 10. Let's open in prayer. Our Father, I thank you for this new year, and I thank you for the opportunity uh, that you give us uh, not only to renew ourselves in, in, uh, in the mundane things uh, of life, uh, uh, the turning of new leaves uh, and, what's, uh, and, and so forth, but Father, you also give us an opportunity to uh, begin each day anew with you. And Father, as we, as we uh, continue our study, we're, we're, we continue to be impressed with the fact that you have... Uh, given us all that is necessary for life and godliness. And Father, we thank you for that. We pray that you might teach us from your word and you might give us opportunities to act out what we learn, we pray. In Yeshua's name, Amen. Baruchut Adonai Hamvorach, Baruch Adonai Hamvorach, Leolam Baed, Baruch Adonai, Eloheinu Melech Haolam, Asher Bachabanu Mikohamim, Venatan Lanu et Torato, Baruch Adonai, Noten HaTorah. Amen. Bless Adonai, who is blessed. Blessed is Adonai, who is blessed forever. Blessed art thou, Adonai, our God, King of the universe, who chose us from all the peoples and gave to us his Torah. Blessed art thou, Adonai, giver of the Torah. Amen. Amen. Uh, well, we're continuing our discussion. Uh, And it's giving me notes here. It's like, it's like a production. I don't know. You can just ask me that. <laughs> um, we're continuing our discussion, Lesson 10. Oops. Uh, for the Word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, and piercing even to the dividing of soul and spirit, both of joints and marrow, and is able to discern the thoughts and intentions of the heart, Hebrews 4.12. And as we talked about in our homework, obviously, standalone, this verse really speaks for itself. I mean, it really doesn't need any additional information for it to have value for us. But in context, and playing the, uh, as we discussed, the Hillel uh, string of pearls game, it, it, it it gains additional depth and more importantly it fits so perfectly with the discussion that's going on uh, that the writer has for us uh, in, in, in the fourth chapter and continuing on uh, for the next eight chapters as he talks about the high priesthood of Messiah in the last lesson we looked at the tabernacle specifically and the furnishings that were commanded for a specific reason in order that God could dwell among them one of the reasons why we actually did it last week and not in the later lesson was because in preparation, or last lesson and not a later lesson, it was in preparation for this week's lesson. Because we needed to see those kerovim uh, uh, on the curtain, on the veil. We also saw the breakdown of the parts of the tabernacle. This is going to be invaluable to us as we get to chapter 9. Because the breakdown, and even though we know know these things, sometimes we just need refresher courses just to remind ourselves of what it looks like to be oriented. Uh, But we saw the increasing levels of holiness all the way until you get to the Holy of Holies. Okay? This is uh, very, very consistent. If you, if, you, if, you do, if you do a lot of, uh, of Torah study, you discover very soon that this is a persistent theme. 
uh, really throughout it, but beginning in, in the book of Exodus especially, Exodus and Leviticus deal with these levels of purity and levels of holiness in, in, in remarkable ways, and uh, especially when they were in the wilderness in relationship to the tabernacle. It gave it. So with that, when you get to Zechariah, and it says that all Jerusalem will be holy, you begin to understand that it's speaking of this same concept of levels of holiness within the tabernacle. For all Jerusalem to be holy is a remarkable thing. But for now, we have the tabernacle in the temple with varying levels of holiness. The tabernacle was according to a pattern of what Moses saw on the mountain, as we saw. And that pattern we saw, it, it represents a visible representation of something that what he saw, but wasn't visible in the sense that we think of visible. So it's basically, it's the visible of the invisible, which is a, an amazing concept. It's an amazing concept when you take into account the apostolic scriptures and the very and the very incarnation of Yeshua uh, because it, it's used as a, 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 a picture. That's why when, when we talk about the, the, the tabernacle, the temple, points to Yeshua it's a, it's, it's a great way of referring to it. It's the visible of what is invisible. Moses was faithful in building. You saw that at the end of Exodus 40, he was faithful. He did everything right. He anointed it. He did all that he was commanded to do. Uh, Bezalel, uh, the craftsman, was dead on in everything that he did. He was perfect in his creation of the, the furnishings that went into it. Uh, the people were more than enough, more than generous enough. Moses did it right. He anointed it correctly. He had the priesthood anointed and prepared. And yet, after it was erected, he was still driven from the temple. It did work. Or the tabernacle, excuse me. It did work. It worked, if you want to use that phrase. It worked. God, God's presence showed up. The problem is that it worked, and yet there was still something lacking. And it's given to us as an illustration. Uh, we need to know the steps. We need to know what comes first. And in this regard, the temple or the tabernacle are there for the presence of God to dwell among them. And as we're going to see as we move through, the priesthood is to act as an intermediary, as to act as a, uh, a fill-in for both God, who is infinite, and man, who is finite. Someone in the middle. And the sacrifices are to provide for sinful and impure man to approach an infinite and holy God. So all of it is for one purpose then, so that he can dwell among us. That's its purpose. Um, sacrifices don't stand on their own. They're, for not, they're not for no reason at all. Priesthood, there's no need for a priesthood if there are no sacrifices. There really isn't. None. And there's no need for a tabernacle if God won't dwell among us. You know, Rick, it brings up a point where we're, we're talking to uh, folks in the church that are somewhat shocked. Sacrifices? <laughs> sacrifices, and that we would uh, desire to have a temple and continue that and so forth, and, and how it somehow detracts from Yeah, that. well, I can understand that. I can understand that. Um, but it, it just occurred to me that I, I'm, while I am considered righteous before God, I'm not without sin. Very good. So I can't, I can't fellowship with him in, in a 
in a, in a dwelling type of scenario. Excellent. Even today. What a great idea. Even though Jesus has already made it, sir. Imagine, imagine just for a moment. Just give me your opinion. And it, there's no right or wrong answer here. Let's say that Peter, John, any one of the disciples... Understanding the theological implications of Yeshua's death, burial, and resurrection. Let's say they had walked straight into the temple, pushed aside the high priest or the priest, and walked into the Holy of Holies. What do you think would have happened to them? Not only not, not only that, what would do you think and now I'm not asking you to answer for God, I'm just asking, what do you think would have happened to them? What do you think do you think God would have permitted it? He would have he could he cannot. He cannot permit them to come before. I think the key is that the idea of the sacrifices in the tabernacle is not to enable a relationship with God. Exactly. Exactly. To enable the ability to interact with God. This is very different. This is not having it's kinda like the difference between having a friendship with someone having them love you and you do love them and then having, you know, a phone to call them on. This was a tool that God used for us to interact with them directly. This is a different level from just... I mean, other Keep that in mind. You, the, the, you know, the, Joshua used the term a different level. Keep that in mind because that's what we're talking about. If we go back to chapter 2, remember, what is all this discussion about? It's about the world to come. And, and unfortunately, what we have is we have in our minds, uh, because of our because of our our own backgrounds, we have in our minds this idea that there's the physical that's bad, there's the spiritual but that's good, and never the twain shall meet. And we don't always bring into our thinking the idea that they're related. They're related, that they are intertwined, in fact. And there are two domains that in discussion. A tabernacle, a temple, that's physical and can be seen. That's a copy and a representation of something that is invisible and can't be seen. Okay? Two different domains. And we'll, as we go further into this, these next few, few lessons, it's going to become painfully obvious, as we keep repeating it over and over again, that, that uh, this is really the, the, the thrust of or maybe not the thrust of his arguments to these chapters, but it takes up a whole lot of meat of these chapters. He's discussing things about this, relation, this, this relationship between the physical, or the material, I should say, the material and the immaterial. And in his discussion, people get so bogged down in the, uh, in the cool things they may be seeing with regard to, aren't we glad we don't have sacrifices? That's what the, Really, it's quite, quite honestly, that's exactly the way it is. If you read Matthew Henry, that's exactly what it is. Isn't it great? We don't have to do all this stuff anymore. Now turn the page. Let's move on. Um, uh, in speaking of very denigrating and, 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 and negative language, uh, like the presence, being in the presence of the Almighty God could ever be considered a dark dispensation. I mean, it's amazing. But along those lines, we, we need to understand that the, the meat of all these chapters is, in fact, trying to make a point about this because it has something to do with his main point, the world to come. Okay? It's not about now. I mean, it was about now to these people, but he was, he was giving them an exhortation and a warning that it had to do with the world to come. Okay? 
still from the point something that we're talking about a minute ago. Peter makes a real interesting... I've got my wrong Bible, so I can't find... The wrong Bible. Uh-oh. There are denominations that use the wrong Bible, but I... Yeah. Right. The one that I make lots of notes in, this isn't the one. And so I can't find it, but it's in one of the Peters, where he makes a real interesting statement about how... Talking to believers about how they are now... A royal priesthood. Yeah, yeah, First Peter, exactly. Is it First mm-hmm. Peter? Okay. That they are now a royal priesthood, using words that were applied back in Leviticus to oh, yeah. people. That he's now applying them to all believers. And so, how does this fit in with all of this that we're talking about? He's making Excellent. Kind of special, Good point. He's making he's making a real special designation to believers. At this point. Go, go real quickly to First Peter chapter one. <laughs> First Peter two, okay. That's yeah, now you're. Crazy. Yeah, you're right. You're right. First Peter two. But yes, interesting about that phrase. It shows up in, in addition to just the Aaronic priesthood. The actual original usage of used to be a kingdom of priests. I mean, shows up in Exodus. Okay, and, and, that, and that, that, that was that was what I could do after I read this passage. Let's talk about that after I read this passage. It's it's going to get a little bit into what we're going to do in the future, but that's okay. Um, uh, chapter two, First uh, Peter, chapter two, verse nine. But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, His own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. This is, in fact, the language of the book of Exodus. Okay, and what what Josh was alluding to is the fact that the, they were all to be priests. They were all Israel was going to be a nation of priests. That was his plan. Yet the sin of the golden calf made it so they couldn't be priests. But why did Levi then get chosen? That's it. They were the ones that said, no, not enough. You know, we're not going to do this. And it was because of that that he gave to them the covenant of the priesthood. As we're going to look at in a future, future lesson, this covenant of the priesthood. But yet, that's exactly right. Not to detract from what Peter is saying here. Because we are all priests. The difference is, we are all priests under what order? Yeah. And as we're going to see when we get to the order of Malkitzedek, it has a domain that is not here. If the temple was here, it would not be here. You want to raise some interesting inside questions at the end of Isaiah implies that Gentiles will be taken from the nations and made Levites. So. But we, we have, yeah. But we, that's, a, that's a totally different discussion. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Thanks, Josh. I appreciate yeah. that. Well, and, and, and the language of that great high priest was Levitical. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Um, but that, the language is so so. What it is, it's almost as if it's the repairing of a breach. It's almost the bringing back of everything to back where it was supposed to be. In Peter's language, it makes it sound as if finally we're back to where we're supposed to be. Yeah. yeah. Uh, go to Exodus uh, twenty-six one. Oh, how amazing! We're going to go to Exodus. Moreover, you shall make the tabernacle with ten curtains of fine woven linen and blue, purple, scarlet thread, and artistic design of, uh, it says, cherubim. You shall weave them. 
And then verse uh, 31 says, You shall make a veil woven of blue, purple, and scarlet thread, and fine woven linen. It shall be woven with an artistic design of cherubim, is what it says. Honestly now, how many of you have ever seen a diagram or a, a, a picture, a graphic of the temple or the tabernacle that had cherubim on, on the curtains? Anybody? Yes, because Jer- Jeremiah is raising his hand because he's seen, he's seen Kyle Richmond's pictures of the tabernacle and the temple. Uh, why? Well, Kyle Richmond has no bias involved. He says, this is what it says, let's build it like that. He's the head of the Temple Institute in Jerusalem. He says, this is what it says, let's build it like that. But quite honestly, why does nobody show that? It's interesting. Everybody knows there's cherubim on the... On the, on the on the Ark of the Covenant, right? But nobody knows. Where are there cherubim? There's a lot of places. You did your homework, you know. Uh, first of all, I gave you I gave you a wrong spelling. Uh, it is a vet and not a bait. So it is, in fact, cherubim, not cherubim. It's cherubim. In my in my transliteration, I I, I made a mistake in giving you that transliteration as cherubim. It's cherubim. Comes from the comes from the singular cheruv. They are the near ones. Actually, if you look it up, this the der- uh, derivation of this word, der- the verb that it comes from, no one knows. What does it mean? Uh, speculation is that it's it's like to draw near. Uh, so they would they some say it's the near ones. Otherwise, uh, no one knows. It's just what does it mean? Who knows? We don't know. Um, they have wings. Uh, in fact, one would one would offer that them and and uh, and seraphim are probably the only ones that have wings that we know of. <laughs> so they are winged. Uh, however, they don't look anything like uh, uh, what people draw angels like. <laughs> they got a hand underneath the wing. That's kind of weird. Yeah, uh, they got four faces. You know, so ah, uh, yeah, yeah. So, so obviously, uh, this is, these are not the, all, the, all the common uh, depictions. The problem with this word, and the reason I didn't use the word cherub up there, is because that's like so Greek. I mean, what is that? It's like a little baby angel or something. I don't know. What's that? It's like, yeah, exactly. You know, how sick is that? How how perverse. It is. That's it's it's keruv and keruvim plural keruvim. Uh, I, I laugh when I read the King James because it says two cherubims, <laughs> which is superfluous uh, plural there. Yeah. Uh, uh, how many have ever seen a picture in a Bible story book of the angel and the sword standing outside the garden? Were there two or one? Just one. No, no. It says there's. Two. It says Carovine. I know. <laughs> it says Carovine. And by the way, it is a. It is a uh, I know. It's, it's almost like it's a guarantee. If it gets translated into English, transliterated into English, it's almost like a guarantee. They'll get it wrong. They'll reverse things. All CHs, when you transliterate, should be pronounced right? A cough or a het. Not this one. This is actually a cough. It's a It's Carovine. Um, so I mean, it's like it's like we talked about with sh, she, and seen. You know, every time it's translated into English as a sh, they get it backwards. 
you know, it's Shabbat, not Sabbat. <laughs> uh, it, it, it's it's it almost always uh, the English thing gets it backwards. I, I guess we're arrogant or something. We think we know better than the people that actually wrote it, you know, for us, scribed it for us, the Hebrews. We'd ask them. <laughs> it's kind of like the the uh, creation of the word Jehovah. Somebody should have just asked a Jewish person, "What's his name?" They'd say, "Well, it isn't that." <laughs> What are you stupid? <laughs> Look it, you can read it right there. <laughs> it says, "Don't say that." <laughs> exactly. It's like, I, you know, how hard is this? You know. Yeah, it's just, I'm sure it's a sense of arrogance on our part, and we bring it into English. Anyway, let's go to Ezekiel 10 because we talk about these cherubim uh, and uh, and uh, how they look. It's 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 important because it they have you ever heard this argument you know how come the uh, how come God said don't have any idols you know don't have any graven images and then he immediately tells them put these statues on top of the ark you know what's that about so obviously we're allowed to do some things have you heard that I've heard it I'm sorry maybe I hang around with the wrong people all the time. <laughs> well there there are some very good reasons uh, first of all um, the ark was not worshipped number one. Uh, number two, who saw the ark? One guy, once a year. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, I would offer they may not have seen it at all. Because what was the light? The glory of God was there, no question. But is that glory visible? He dwells in unapproachable darkness. He, he dwells in unapproachable light. What is, what is the light, the darkness? I mean, do our eyes see? My suspicion is that no one saw anything. Yes, and there was smoke covering it. Yeah, the smoke was, in fact, to cover it. It says to cover the mercy seat. Yeah. Anyway, anyway uh, another discussion altogether. Uh, Ezekiel 10, chapter 1 through 22. Uh, just go over a few points real quickly, um, and anything that you all would uh, add to this. Um, they have an appearance, right? Um, but it's right off the bat. It talks about where these these uh, above the head of the cherubim uh, has the appearance of the likeness of a throne. Okay, so that the cherubim are being described here. But before he even gets into that, he says, "But above their head was something that looked like a throne." Okay, and then he goes on to describe in the cherubim. And, and these, these cherubim, by the way, uh, over a city. Yeah, I mean, what city is this? Jerusalem. Um, standing on the south side is this 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 cherubim uh, standing on the south side of the temple. The glory of the Lord, Lord went out from the cherubim, verse four, and paused over the threshold of the temple. And the sound of the wings of the cherubim, verse uh, verse five, cherubim was heard even in the outer court, like the voice of the Almighty when He speaks. That's interesting. I always pay attention to those. I hear that. And there were thunderings, a sign, it means voices, and they heard the voice of the Almighty speaking the ten words, and in fact, this is very similar. So, uh, their wing sounds like the voice of the Almighty. Um, verse 6, take fire from among their wheels, from among the cherubim. There's fire among them. Um, how does that relate to uh, the, the coal of Isaiah 6? How does that relate to uh, the idea of souls under the altar in, uh, in, in the book of Revelation? Fiery ones, yeah. 
And the, and the cherub, verse 7, stretched out his hand from among the cherubim uh, to the fire that it was among the cherubim and took some of it and put it into the hands of man clothed with linen, took it and went out. The cherubim appeared to have the form of a man's hand under their wings. It's kind of odd. Um, it goes about describing them, verse uh, 10. All four looked alike, as it were a wheel. Excuse me, uh, I got to go down here further. Eyes all around, as, as Valerie talked about. Having the name, the wheel. Each one had four faces, verse 14. The first face was the face of a cherub. Is that redundant or what? Yeah, is, it, is that redundant? It was, okay, what's the face of a cherub if they all have four faces? Yes. It's like multidimensional. It's like looking in a mirror, looking in a mirror, looking in a mirror. But still, it's almost like, well, this one had the face of the, you know, the first face was like the face of the cherub. <laughs> I know. <laughs> chocolate tastes like chocolate, yeah. Uh, the second, the face of a man, the third, the face of a lion, and the, and the fourth, the face of an eagle. Something interesting we're looking at in uh, one of Judah's Bible story books last night had a picture of the tabernacle, and on the outside had a had on the curtains, instead of caravan, actually had eagles and. Lions? Eagles and lions. Like, is this a representation of the faces? I don't know. The glory of God was above them. Anybody get anything else in describing these Caroline? What are the Caroline? Where are they? First Kings 6, 21 through 28. 38. 38. We were looking at these. These things are... It says 10... Uh, ten well, it says 10 cubits. So it's 18 inches, about 18 inches in a cubit. Yeah. You know, uh, the length of a man's... Yeah. Oh, so big, huge. Where are they sitting? In the Holy of Holies, overshadowing the ark itself. Why? Who gave him permission to do that? What else was did we see in 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 the in First Kings? What else was? Are the cherubim just on the curtains or just in the Holy of Holies? And in addition, we saw the we saw the uh, the the zitim, right? The blossoms and the palm trees. What's the palm tree about? Ooh! Now we're getting a connection. This is the Halil thing, right? We're getting the we're getting the connection. Wait, caravan and tree. I've read that before. <laughs> in fact, by the way, if you want to know that tradition holds that the tree of life looks like a palm tree. It never looks that way in a Bible storybook, but I'm just telling you that's that's the truth. <laughs> yeah, you get out. No, that was a tree of the knowledge of good and evil. <laughs> so they were supposed to go for dates, and they went for apples and things. Yeah, that's good. <laughs> um, just to, just a note. The 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 the, the in zitzit that men wear the tehillet. Not, not everybody wears tehillet today, but in ancient times they wore tehillet as they're commanded. Numbers fifteen, the tehillet for it to for it to to bind to the fabric had to be wool. Well, I shouldn't say had to be. Almost most likely was wool, and and since their their clothes were supposed to be not a mixture. They actually had in their in the seat seat themselves. They actually had a mixture of wool and fabric. 
which was the same thing that the high priest was to wear. Remember, they were commanded not to mix their clothing with, li- with linen and wool. And the reason why is because priests wore uh, the wool, the high priest rather wore the wool, and the normal priests, the average priests, wore only linen. So the mixing was considered reserved for the priesthood. And the zitzit are the only thing that a, a Jewish man, uh, a Hebrew man, could actually have that had a mixed linen and wool. So when he wore it, he wore, as it were, the fabric of the high priest. He wore the high priest's fabric. And in the same regard, the motif, as we see in First Kings, he's, 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 he is wearing the things that were carved into it. The blossoms, the same word, zitim, zitim. Uh, so they are a representation of, he's basically he's walking around as a representation, as a picture of the high priesthood and the tabernacle, or the temple. Okay? It is cool. Oh, I, I skipped it. Hold on. Go back. Number 7889. Go, go real quickly there so we can look at this. These cherubim. What's what? What does their presence indicate? They're not. They're not an image of. They're an image of something that's that that Moses saw, and they made a pattern, right? But what what is there? Uh, we saw that Ezekiel actually saw them. Okay, so they aren't just a representation of something that can't be seen. Uh, Ezekiel saw them. They are beings, as it were. Uh, n- number seven eighty nine says. Well, well, now when Moses went into the tabernacle of meeting to speak with him, speaking of Hashem, he heard the voice of one speaking to him from above the mercy seat that was on the Ark of the Testimony, from between the two cherubim. Thus he spoke to him. God spoke from between the cherubim. We see the same thing in First uh, Samuel four four. which says so the people sent to Shiloh that they might bring from there the ark of the covenant of the Lord of hosts who dwells between the cherubim hear, hear this phrase the Lord of hosts uh, Hashem Sevaot or Adonai Sevaot who dwells between the cherubim is used and it's used again in Second Samuel 6 2 Asked you what is what is the name of God that uses this, and that's that is the name of God. Six two, which says, and those, David arose uh, and went with the people who were with him from Baal Judah to bring up from there the Ark of God, whose name is called by the name the Lord of Hosts, Adonai Tzavahot, Hashem Tzavahot, who dwells between the Cherubim. He who dwells between the Cherubim. Okay. He dwells between the Cherubim. So, what we see is, this is this is a representation of the throne of God. That's why we say the Ark of the Covenant is the throne of God. So, that's, the, that's the point. These near ones indicate God's nearness, His proximity, and His throne, His authority to rule. Okay? Now, we saw this... Uh, Alluded to in the in the palm trees, <laughs> cherubim and the tree of life. Go to uh, Genesis three twenty two. Mm-hmm. 
This is very Hebraic. We are following keyword to keyword. And the Lord God said, Behold, the man, the man has become like one of us to know good and evil and now lest he put out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to till the ground from which he was taken what was the purpose for which uh, why was man driven from the garden to keep him from eating from the tree of life that's that's the reason he was kicked out of the garden to keep him from eating the tree of life now we all we know ultimately it was because he was sinful Right? He sinned. Uh, so he, he, he was not to be permitted to eat from the tree of life in such a state. Okay? So he was removed from the garden. Uh, uh, where's the garden? You know, some people say, where's the garden of Eden? I heard that Daniel Lancaster, somebody asked him that. It's like, where's the garden of Eden on the map? You know, he's a, his brother's a cartographer. Uh, you know, where's the Garden of Eden on the map? You know, and there's no, he says, there's no, wait, you know, there's no, you know, there's no Garden of Eden on the map. You know, it's, he says it's east of east. Um, but if one, if one were to try and discover where the Garden of Eden on the map is, in a traditional sense, you'd say, well, it must be Jerusalem. <laughs> well, maybe there's something to that. But regardless, it's not there. Okay? It's not there yet. So he drove out the man and placed cherubim, not cherubims or cherubim, two, multiple. There's more than one here he placed. At the east of the Garden of Eden, interesting, why east of the Garden of Eden? That's where the door is. That's where the door is. That's a good statement, actually. East of the Garden of Eden, and a flaming sword that is singular, which turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Okay? Eric et Hachaim. Sing. <laughs> Go to Proverbs 3. Three eighteen. Excuse me, I'm sorry. 3.18. The topic being discussed is wisdom. She, speaking of wisdom, is like a tree of life. That's hachaim. To those who take hold of her and happy are all who retain her. This is uh, part of the synagogue liturgy. You know, the grasping of the, uh, the, 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 the spindles, as it were, on a Torah scroll are called trees of life. So, so it's, a, it's something that is sung, you know, it is, a, it, is li- it is like unto a tree of life to all those who grasp hold of her. Uh, is that fair? Is, is God's word, is that wisdom? He placed before them and they lightened them. The word was life. Interesting. So take take from that wisdom tree of life equality equa- equation there and offset it with what did they eat from? They wanted knowledge as opposed to wisdom. Right? Their choice is knowledge. Obviously, their choice was not even knowledge. It was a poor choice. It was a foolish choice. It's a choice we all make. We choose to have knowledge as opposed to wisdom. Where is wisdom gained? 
Fear the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. You know, it's it's to be gained only from Him. We can't get it anywhere else. And you know, there are no shortcuts. You know, we got to get it from Him. And and the tree of life is is likened unto, or uh, the tree of life is likened unto wisdom. <laughs> it's a real thing too, though. Let's go on. Revelation seven two. Uh, excuse me, two seven. Yeah. Well, you know, I do that, so thanks. <laughs> My dyslexia. Revelation two seven says, speaking of overcomers, uh, and speaking specifically, actually, to the uh, the assembly at Ephesus, he who has an ear. Let him hear what the Spirit says to the assemblies. To him who overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. Where is the tree of life today? The same place it's always been. The garden did not disappear. Well, it wasn't moved. Where is it? That's right. I mean, where is it? Well, I mean, I don't know that we can find it on a map, but is, does the garden exist? Most assuredly. Most assuredly. And where's the tree? The same place it's always been. This tree of life that, that man is forbidden to go to. Because they might eat and live forever. Go to uh, chapter 22, verse 2. In the middle of the street, this is speaking of... uh, Speaking of the New Jerusalem uh, from chapter 21. In the middle of the street and on either side of the river was the tree of life, which bore twelve fruits. Each tree... Actually, it says each tree, but each yielding its fruit is what it says. Every month, the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. The leaves of the tree of life healed the nations. Can I conclude then that the New Jerusalem has some correlation to the paradise of God? I would say so, yeah. I know the correlation, but certainly there's goes with... It's in the same book, Revelation 2.7. Uh, go to 22.14. Which says, Blessed are those who do all his commandments, that they may have the right to eat of the tree of life, and may enter through the gates of the city. Uh, entering through the gates, of course, is the, is the, is the idea uh, being represented of entering the garden. Certainly there's something there. Um, uh, but having the right to eat the tree of life. Go back, step back. So they were driven from the garden, which are guarded by Caravine, with a sword, a flaming sword, which turns every which way, right? And a returning to the tree of life in the New Jerusalem is at the end of the book. So we have this bookmarks, right? I mean, the first time I hear about it, and it's like a chapter where God's creating, talking about creating a garden, and it says, He causes, all, he, he causes, and creates all of the trees. And there's been this pause. Yes. Then it lives yes. those other two trees that are in the garden. That are unique. And it's like, maybe God didn't
and, and from reading all of these pearls, it just really seemed to me, by the time I got to the bottom of it, that this is got something to do with eternity and God. And hey, yeah. This is an always thing. First of all, I think it's a mistake for us to turn into metaphors these things because we know it's a specific it's a specific tree. It's a real. It's a physical tree in the garden, and it appears in Revelation 22. It's the same thing. A, it's a physical tree, or trees in the garden, or in the in, in the New Jerusalem, uh, and it it's alluded to in chapter two of Revelation as a, as a physical tree. Uh, so to spiritualize or make it some sort of immaterial thing or come up with an allegory for it would be a mistake. I think the problem is within these bookends. There are allusions to the tree of life that, that it's being used as a as it, metaphorically. Wisdom is like unto a tree of life. Joshua. So what if I think you brought this up this week and I mentioned this to you? What if the metaphor isn't really a metaphor? What if in the tree of life there is the meeting of the physical and spiritual, the, the seen and the unseen? Because if you look at the river of the river of the water of life. Yeshua says that he, I am the water of life in John but then Revelation says come and drink of the river and it's like how do you drink of him so it just kind of makes raises some very interesting questions that maybe this goes beyond something that makes sense to our very split dimension we live in the physical spiritual separate Judah do you remember when we were in Jerusalem we went down to the Dead Sea what's going to happen when Yeshua comes back is the Dead Sea going to be salty no. What's, it's going to have fish in it. That's right. And they're going to have fishing villages. Is that right? Remember how it's going to get clean so it's not salty anymore? How? The water's going to come out of the temple and flow down the valley. That's right. It's amazing. What, what exact comes from the throne of God? So where... Interesting. Caroline. So what river of life will have trees on either side of it and in the street. Yes, and we were, so we're talking about the same imagery, obviously different parts of scripture, Zechariah, uh, but we're talking about the same imagery being used, uh, that, that this tree has a, coral, a direct correlation to the presence of the Almighty, God himself. Okay? Just like the Kerovim do. They're guarding it. It's of some importance and value more importantly I would say not only they, they, they are not necessarily guarding it they're guarding man from eating it God alludes to in, in, in chapter 3 verse 22 of, of Genesis he alludes to it being bad for us if we were to eat it in this state that's right that seems to imply that it would be not any improper parchment word it would be grotesque almost for man to eat it after having eaten the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Yeah, you know, be, be careful for what you wish for. Well, God has already promised them the same as the other tree, that the reward of that was going to be just. Yeah. So you can't have it both ways. You can't have death and life together. That's right. Uh, it, it, is, it is mysterious. I, I have to admit it's mysterious. It's not, our design in, in doing all this is not to come up with conclusions necessarily. Simply to play off these illusions that the writer of Hebrews is making. And maybe you haven't made those connections yet, but he's making illusions to this for a reason. Okay? 
The sword. The flaming sword. Genesis. Caravine. Plural. Have a single flaming sword. I don't know. Would they share it? Or, you know, two hands. And, you know, those hands under the, the wings, maybe. You know, so maybe. Uh, uh, the point is that they, there's one sword. Two caravine. But the sword seems to have a mind of its own. It turns every which way. Oh, yes. Oh, man. It's not. But is it, is it the sword that's turning every which way? Because... That's the same way they Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. There's there's definitely something at work here. But let me just ask you this. Just in your minds, picture for a moment two caravim and a sword between them. What's between the caravim? The throne of God. What is the word of God? We're going to look at it here in a second. Revelation uh, Revelation 11. His name is, he was riding on a white horse, his name is the word of God, and out of his mouth comes a double-edged sword. So, regardless of what that sword is, there is the imagery that applies directly to Messiah. Okay? Because it is between the caravan. It is shared in some way by them. There's one sword to caravan. There are not two swords. There's only one sword. There's no old sword and new sword. (laughs) Old Testament and New Testament. There's only one sword. (laughs) What is this sword? They have a single flaming sword and it's a cherub. The fl- word flaming is not really important because we really can't discover much from, from Hebrew. It's only used twice in, 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 in the Hebrew scriptures. And the one time it's used uh, later on it has to do with uh, the magicians of, of Egypt and what they were able to do. So it has, it has, no, it has no direct correlation to discover further meaning. Is, 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 uh, we can't discover further meaning. So flaming is about all we can come up with. Flaming in some angelic way. Who knows why? Uh, but what is this sword? It's a cherub. And by the way, that is a ch. It's a het. It looks like the same. I know. Look at that. That looks like cherubim, right? It looks the same, which is what your note in your workbook was supposed to indicate. That was a little bit cryptic the way I did it in there. It looks the same in transliteration, but it's spelled completely different. There's no relationship between cherubim and cherub sword. There's no relationship. They, they come from different roots. Okay? But there is a relationship in cherub sword and horeb, as in Mount Horeb. Go to Exodus 3. It is ha. Mm-hmm. Ha. Exodus 3. And it's, it's, uh, it's also listed later in Exodus 33, but Exodus 3. And I chose this one rather than Exodus 33 because, uh, well, we'll see for here, here in a second line. Uh, chapter 3, verse 1 says, Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the back of the desert and came to Horeb, the mount of God. Remember what I said? Anytime you translate something into English, you'll always get it wrong. This is one of them. Why is it cherubim when it should sound like a k? <laughs> and why is it Horeb when it should sound like a Horeb. <laughs> should be a CH there. Um, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire from the midst of the bush. So he looked and behold the bush was burning with fire. The bush was not consumed. 
angel's presence. He's on this mountain called Horeb. It's spelled differently with vowel points, but guess what? In the Torah scroll, it's not spelled different at all. What's the difference in spelling? There are no vowel points. How do we know that it's Horeb and not Cherub? We're trusting our Masoret scribes, you know, in, in, uh, in the year 900 to make sure that they gave us the right indication. But even they said, even they said, isn't this cool? It's spelled the same. Why is it? And that's what it says in, in, in Midrash Rabbah for Exodus. It says, why is it that Mount Horeb is called Horeb? Exodus 33.6. Because thereupon the Torah called a sword, Horeb, given, as it says, let the high praises of God be in their mouth and a two-edged sword in their hand. Psalms 149.6. See, it's not the apostolic scriptures that start this idea that God's word is a two-edged sword. They never start anything. I mean, they always, they always elucidate to something that has already been said. They always illuminate and give us further insight. But the point is that it is a great correlation because it's exactly what God intends us to see. God's word is a two-edged sword. Okay? Go to Ephesians 6.17. We did this one. I hope that when people read these verses later at a later date they remember this they make the connection it's like oh yeah 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 yeah, I got that that was really that connected me back to Genesis 3 who would have done it to Genesis 3 before then Uh, Ephesians 6.17 and it connects me out to Revelation 22 who would have done that before then take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit which is the word of God uh, Revelation one sixteen. Which says, He had in his right hand, speaking of Messiah, he had in his right hand seven stars. Out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword. And his countenance was like the sun, shining in its strength. Revelation 2.16, he says it again. Repent, or else I will come to you quickly and will fight against you with the sword of my mouth. Who's he speaking to? Pergamos. These two things he says. Verse 12. Who has, he who has the sharp two-edged sword. Okay? Pergamos. And some group of people live in Turkey. No, Asia Minor now. It's Turkey now. It was a city. Pergamus was a city. And believers that lived there, they needed to hear this. You need to repent. Because if you don't, yikes. I'll come quickly, I'll fight against you with the sword of my mouth. On the sword? On the sword of the mouth. And what it means, it always means judgment. Judgment. That's right. Uh, which we see in, in Revelation 19, uh, verse 11. I always have to start there. 
Now I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is to called the Word of God. And the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on, a, on white horses. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he should strike the nations, and he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God, and he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So what's the connection between the sword, the word, the Torah, Akharib, Akharib, the Kerubim and the tabernacle imagery. Go to chapter uh, 4 of Hebrews, verse 12. And, and in a way, I'm not saying that they didn't, they didn't have to do this. Maybe they did, I don't know. But in a way, what we've done is simply established the background that hopefully they already had. These common connections they would have already had. Uh, in my mind, that's probably the more likely way it pans out. They probably, he probably said these verses to them, wrote these verses, and they immediately made these connections because they were common connections. Whereas for us, we generally take chapter 4, verse 12 out of context because it's such a great verse. I mean, it just is. It's such a great verse, we usually don't place it within the context that it's in. And because of that, we miss some of the additional uh, insights into what he's saying here. For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and, a pierce, and piercing even to the dividing of soul and spirit of joints and marrow and is able to discern the thoughts and intentions of the heart. I remember me reading a book called Marismos. The idea that you can uh, divide between soul and spirit. That's what Marismos. Uh, the idea that God's words, its purpose for us was to help us to discern what's spiritual, what's soulish is what the phrase that the, that the person used. Uh, uh, it's not Watchman Nee, but something like similar to what Watchman Nee had written about this. I do not believe at all that that's what it's talking about. I believe what it's talking about is it's using sacrificial language. It's dividing of, bo- of joints and marrow uh, and soul and spirit. What is the division of soul and spirit? If I say, if I, if, if, can you have a, can you have, by the way, if you, if you think in Hebraic terms, as opposed to Greek terms, Hebraic terms. Um, uh, how, how are we to love God with all our what? Okay, that, and that's the that's the, the 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 Greek variation as as Yeshua repeats it in Matthew chapter twenty-two. But what does it say in the Shema? Yeah, there's only three things mentioned. And Greek requires us to say additional words to explain what it means. The point is that, that and, I've, and I've always taught this big deal about soul and spirit being not one and the same. And, and in fact, uh, Hebrew never does that. This is nefesh. That's, that's, that's my soul. You know, and my body and my soul. That's it. Uh, the the idea that we were breathed, that God breathed the spirit into us is, 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 is the joining, as it were, between my nefesh, my soul, and my body. But if my soul is divided from my spirit, it means I'm dead. 
that's the language that's being used actually it's the language of it'll kill you the sword look, is, will the sword kill us I mean if, as we've read as we went through all these was it a sword of judgment he's going to strike the nations with a sword that comes out of his mouth this is a sword that kills people we can assume the fact that this is the same force and power that created the universe yes I think it has the force and power to kill individual individuals so not to negate and not to not to downplay the, because it talks specifically about being able to discern the thoughts and intention of the heart not to downplay that but understand that to get to that point it's talking of sacrificial language the, the, the correct dividing of an animal to place it on the altar had to be done in a specific way in a, in a, in a specific order and, and the sword that commanded it the Torah that commanded it is able to kill you what was it like to go in to make an, a sacrifice an offering as, as a person in the, in, in the days of the tabernacle first temple second temple could you walk in and stay unbloodied? Could you walk in and be unaffected by what you saw and smelled? What, what an incredible thing you would have been experiencing because of the offerings. But to get to that point, what would you experience? Certainly, without question. There is the evidence before you that death... Death is somehow required. Virtually every sense. Wow. I get to experience all this great experience of being in the presence of God, life itself. But to get there, I gotta go through the sword that, you know, as it were, you know, the priest's gonna slit the throat of this animal, take its blood, splash it at the base of the altar, take it up, take the blood up, and pour the blood on the altar, or pl- or sprinkle it, depending on what kind of sacrifice it was, then carve the animal up in my presence. In some regards, making me eat it with him. I'm sorry, I'm not hungry. I'm sorry. You just brought a sacrifice. You must eat it. I'm sorry, I feel a little bit nauseous having watched all this. (laughs) Right? What a powerful thing. This is the imagery that he's bringing up. The dividing of the joints and marrow. Piercing. This is the imagery. Why? Look, he can discern your thoughts and your heart. You know, we talk about, you know, he does not desire burnt offerings. You know, he does not desire the fat or the blood. You know, what he wants is, what, he, what does he want? He wants true worshipers, right? Well, he's not saying he doesn't want sacrifices. He's just saying, how dare you come and offer sacrifices when your heart's turned against me and away from me? <laughs> you got this thing backwards. It's supposed to come, that's supposed to be come from the, from the, from the, from the love in your heart. Your desire to be with me, as opposed to simply an obligation so you look good in front of your friends? I mean, what's up with that? And the phrase, the turner of thoughts and heads of heart, comes right into verse 13, which talks about that neither is there any creature that is not manifest in his sight, but all things are naked and open in the eyes of him with whom we have to do. And it's not the idea of, oh, this is correct, I'm read the word of God, and they can tell me if this is a good motive or not. It's more like the word of God's word looks at my heart, it sees everything as judge there's nothing that's hit from him we get in our minds and it's a correct idea ritual can be so rote that it actually detracts from reality I mean that's true it's true but that's our choice ritual can work the other way and in fact that's exactly what happened to so many in the tabernacle temple system it became 
mere ritual. And that's exactly why God was repulsed by their offerings, because they were not offerings made from a sincere heart. In front of their eyes, the sword, as it were, was used to kill the animal, to carve the animal up and offer it as a sacrifice in front of their eyes, and yet they didn't understand that God could see their hearts were insincere. The connection wasn't being made in many of their minds. The context of chapter 4, verse 12 is, in fact, 11 through 15. Let's go back and read it. If you remember, chapter 4, verse 10, ended with the idea of entering into his rest because he himself also rested from his works as God rested from his. Let us, therefore, give diligence to enter into that rest, lest anyone fall after the same example of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing even to the dividing of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow and is able to discern the thoughts and intentions of the heart there is no creature that is hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and laid open before his eyes of him with whom we have to do. Having then a great Kohen Gadol, high priest, who, was, who has passed through the heavens, Yeshua, the Son of God, let us hold tightly to our confession. For we do not have a Kohen Gadol who cannot be touched with the feelings of, feeling of our infirmities, but one who has in all points been... Uh, all points tempted like we are yet without sin let us therefore draw near with boldness to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need it's, it's perfect tabernacle temple imagery isn't it exactly what it is what is the word of God it is that which shows whether we are sincere or not it reveals it that's why it's so much easier if we just don't talk about things. Everybody can just assume, well, everybody's pretty good with God. You know? So I, I, I heard you tell a lie. That's a lie. I don't know what a lie is. Well, the Word of God tells us what a lie is. Well, I'm sorry. Don't bring that up to me. Do you understand the Word of God makes it evident when we're not sincere? The topic, by the way, is entering the rest, isn't it? Isn't that it? Isn't it amazing? The topic is entering rest, which we saw the entering rest was on three levels, right? First level is entering the land. Moses is ready to take him into the land. He doesn't get to take him into the land because of sin. But Yeshua, or excuse me, Joshua takes him into the land, right? Then we see that the next level is, well, the Sabbath rest. That's kind of like a rest. You get your work done, work diligently into that rest, then you get to rest. And then we see, then we saw, remember he's talking, it's about the world to come we're speaking of. No, you're standing at the threshold of the world to come. Yeshua will lead you in. He will lead you into the world to come. Why would you give up? You're there, you're on a threshold. Why would you leave him? He's the one that can lead you in. Enter, be diligent to enter into that rest. The word of God is sharper than purity. For the word of God. Do you understand the correlation? What's standing at the edge? The doorway, as it were, of the world to come. Beyond the doorway is the tree of life. The presence of the Almighty. Beyond the doorway. Beyond the veil that has the carolene is the presence of the Almighty. His throne. It's the tree of life. We want to get back in there, right? We want to get back there. He's standing at the edge of the world to come, saying, come with me, come with me, into the world to come, 
pass the flaming sword. And those take care of you. And there is no way to get past Kirovim and the sword. There's no way. You cannot get past them without dying. There's no way to get past them without dying. There's no way. They guard the way, and there's no way in. Except, except that we have a high priest that can take us with him through the veil through it says he passed through the heavens through the veil into the presence of God to in fact eat of the tree of life as it were into his very presence that's just I mean how cool is that Jeremiah 31 1 through 2 real quickly and we gotta quit Jeremiah does a great job. And, and as, as Valerie brought up, if you want to explore a cherub, it's a great... Exp- I mean, you can find lots of places in Scripture to talk about it. It's a, it's a, it's a great... It's a lesson all in itself. Um, but Jeremiah brings it up and kind of brings these two concepts together. If I can find it real quick. 311, which says, At that same time, says the Lord, I will be the God of all the families of Israel, and they shall be my people. Thus says the Lord, the people who survived the sword found grace in the wilderness. Israel, when I went to give him rest. There is a way, there is a way to rest. There is a way into the world to come. There is a way into the land, but you've got to go through the sword. You've got to go through the sword. The sword will either kill you or it will defend you depending upon the one that you go with. And that's uh, John 14.6. Yeshua says... Excuse me. Verse 3 of, uh, uh, of Jeremiah. The Lord appeared of old to be saying, Yes, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, the loving kindness. With loving kindness, I have drawn you. He's calling from behind the veil. <laughs> He's calling from the world to come. Which is the whole point of, of the book of Hebrews. It's, it's like, you know, we're, I'm waiting. <laughs> it's like, yeah. Calling. That's right. That's exactly right. Thank you, Valerie. You should have said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I mean, the, the, these words gain additional in, in meanings when we put these connections together that we see in, in, as Scripture does for us, if we're willing. Acts 9, 1 through 2. But they call themselves. These people, these people who are temple sect of Judaism, had discovered the way. They knew the way. The cherubim were guarding the way Derek Etz Chachayim. They were guarding the way to the tree of life. There's a way to the tree of life. That's why they call themselves the way. We know the way. We know the way into the Holy of Holies. We know the way. Maybe not the physical into the Holy of Holies, but they understood that that was a, uh, that was a pad, that was made according to a pattern of something. Something. We know the way into where, that's a, whatever that's a pattern of. We know the way. We've had the way revealed to us. The way is Messiah. He's the way. He's the high priest, the perfect high priest. He can take us in with him, with him into the presence of God. What a, what a perfect name to call themselves. Haderic. We are Haderic. 
Are you members of the way? Oh, yes. It's like a secret society. We're members of the way. We know the way in. What a great reminder that these people needed now. Being forbidden to go into that temple. Being kicked out of the synagogues. To hear, listen, remember, you're the people of the way. Remember, you know the way in. Don't be discouraged. You know the way in. You have a high priest. You have a high priest that's not just going to offer the animal up for you. He's going to offer himself. You know this high priest. He's been revealed to you. He said he's the way. He can take you to the tree of life. To the presence of the Almighty. He's the way. And he takes them through the sword. This is what's great. This is really important. If we understand, as we read through Scripture, beginning to end, that there is no escaping the sword. There is no such thing as grace apart from the sword. That's what it said in Jeremiah 31. It says the people who escaped the sword found grace. It's the going through the sword is what's necessary. It is necessary. It's absolutely necessary. You know, the whole idea is like, well, why did, why did Yeshua have to die on the cross for us? You know, I mean, that's the way God decided to do it. No. That's the way it had to be done. There was no other way. That's what had to be done. It wasn't one of many options. It was the only way for him to take us through the sword is he had to be the one, as it were, to be struck, as it were, by the sword that would divide between joint and marrow, as it were. What great imagery that uh, this writer has done for us. It's further evidence. The technical detail is further evidence of its authenticity. It really is. It's further evidence of its deep, intimate relationship and understanding, not only with the scriptures, but uh, relationship also with the temple system, the tabernacle system as its imagery. And expecting his readers, her readers, to understand and get it as well. It is. Uh, ironically, as we get into chapter five, we're going to see it's like one of the one of his one of his rebukes is you're just immature. Wow, man, if they're immature, where am I? <laughs> uh, if this is if this is the milk, I, I wonder what the meat's like. <laughs> In the context, it, it, it's not wrong to take the, take the verse out of context as we memorize it and use it in that way understanding that God's word does it discern our, it discerns our thoughts it does and that is actually exactly what it means but in the context of this it's, 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 it gives this other level to it like how do you think that you can escape the judgment of the almighty apart from based on his word and the revelation of the verse apart from this high priest you cannot escape there is only one way through the veil into the presence of God into the garden into the new Jerusalem there's only one way it can't be by your own effort okay I got it figured out the sword is the Torah and I'll wield that sword right it's a double edged sword if you take it in your hands it will cut you it is in fact only because Yeshua can take us through that we in fact have any hope at all of eating from the tree of life the 
We have a high priest who is perfect and is the only way to enter the rest, to enter the world to come. He is the only way. Any final comments before we close? Let's close. Our Father, we thank you for your plan. It is so perfect, so so, uh, intricate, so uh, perfectly executed. From the beginning, it was what you desired, what you wanted to do. Slain before the foundation of the world, Yeshua, the Lamb, the perfect Lamb, was the sacrifice. He was the high priest to take us through. And Lord, you uh, revealed to Moses uh, what he saw on the mountain, what he made a pattern of. Father, is a picture for us, for us to understand exactly what it was that you were doing for us. And Father, how it is that you would accomplish it. And our responsibility, Father, was to stay with you and to follow you. And Father, we thank you that Yeshua gives such a perfect example and such a perfect master that is so easy to follow him, so easy to uh, rest in him, Father, if we are content and willing to obey him. Father, we thank you that you have given us this insight. We know that, Lord, that with apart from your, the illumination of your Holy Spirit, we would be unable to see and unable to approach you. Uh, Father, we thank you that you have uh, been gracious to us and given us this uh, opportunity to understand what you have for us. Bless us each one. In Yeshua's name I pray. Amen. Baruch Adonai Eloheinu Melech HaOlam Asher Natan Lanu Torah Temet Bechai Olam Natan Betochenu Baruch Adonai Noten HaTorah Amen Blessed art thou Adonai our God King of the universe who, plant, who gave to us the Torah of truth and planted eternal life in our midst Blessed art thou Adonai Giver of the Torah Amen Thank you.